Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, well, let's look at um, Philippians chapter 2, and we'll start in verses 19 through the end. And if you remember from last week, um, Paul's big thing there was work out your salvation uh, with fear and trembling because God works in you. And don't do anything with grumbling and complaining, but run that race and shine the light um, in a crooked world. And so now he's shifting gears, and he's going to talk about two ministry partners that he wants to send to them. Remember, where's Paul writing from? He's writing from prison in Rome. So he wants to send back some ministry partners to to help out. So let's pick up in Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the Father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So I receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. All right, so tonight, part one of what we're going to be talking about is Paul's two ministry partners. He lists two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus. You've probably heard of Timothy. There's two books named after him. Maybe not have heard of Epaphroditus. So let's first look at Timothy. We're going to do just a little bit of a character sketch here about these guys because it's important to know who these guys are and why Paul commends them. So let's turn back in our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 16. And let's look at how Timothy gets his start. Acts, chapter 16. All right, Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So what do we know about Timothy? His mother was Jewish. His dad was a Gentile. Now, most people, most historians believe that Timothy's dad was probably not safe. That he, was, he came from a, a household where the dad was not a believer, the mom and grandmother were believers. 
Timothy was well spoken of by all the people in those cities. So Paul picks up Timothy as a traveling companion in his ministry. And so Paul almost becomes like a dad figure to, to Timothy. Okay? And so we have other writings of Paul where he talks about Timothy. In 1 Corinthians 4.17, <clears throat> That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So Timothy was important to teaching the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 16.10 When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. Then in 2 Timothy, the letter that Paul actually writes to Timothy, the, the last letter that Paul writes, he's actually, this is, 2 Timothy is the last letter Paul writes as he's about to die in prison. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you. Now let's just talk for a moment here about the importance of grandmothers. Okay? How many of you are grandmothers here? Okay. And mothers. Grandmothers and mothers. How, according to this passage of Scripture, how did Timothy, as a young boy, learn the faith? It dwelt in his grandmother, and they're named. His grandmother's name was Lois, and his mother's name was Eunice. And so Timothy was who he was when Paul picked him up because of the influence of his grandmother and his mother. Notice who's not listed there. His dad. So that's why a lot of scholars believe his dad was probably not a believer. So some of you may have grown up in households where one parent was a believer and one parent wasn't, or one parent took the lead in raising you, or maybe your grandmother or grandfather um, was, was kind of more of a spiritual influence in your life. Timothy had great mentors in his mother and his grandmother and how they taught him. Now, let's look at another passage of Scripture and see what they did. How did Eunice and Lois teach Timothy? 2 Timothy three fourteen and 15. But as for you, he's writing to Timothy, as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What had Timothy been acquainted with since childhood? The Scriptures. In particular, the Old Testament Scriptures. Who taught him the Old Testament Scriptures since he was in childhood? His grandmother and his mother. So what's the principle, grandmothers and mothers and dads? <laughs> Teach your children the Bible. Make them be so acquainted with the Scriptures that they will be able to be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the goal of, of parenting ultimately is to teach and train your children so that they know the Bible so well that they can know how Jesus died on the cross and rose again so they can be saved through him. And so that's what we find out a little bit about Timothy's background. Now let's get back to Philippians. So we've kind of taken a little jaunt there looking at a, at a character study of Timothy. But what does Paul say about Timothy? Very um, interesting wording that he uses. What does he say? Verse 20, I have no one like him. I have no one like him. Literally, we are like-souled. We are kindred spirits. 
we are so connected in this bond of Christian fellowship that there's basically Paul saying if there's a best friend or if there's a son or if there's somebody in my Christian walk, it's like it's Timothy. He's the one person that has stayed the closest with me. There's nobody else like him. Now, question: Somebody besides your spouse or your significant other, is there somebody in your life that you could truly say? There's somebody that's a really, really close friend that's a spiritual encouragement to me that I, I could say I have no one like them in my life. Now, maybe, hopefully that's your spouse. But if it's not your spouse, maybe you have somebody like that. Paul's saying, I have no one like Timothy. Now, he gives three reasons. Actually, two. Two reasons why he's sending Timothy. He's sending Timothy back to the church to encourage them. First of all, he says he's going to be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Verse 20, he will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. What did he say just back last week or a few weeks ago? Don't just look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. Timothy has a genuine concern for you. He doesn't have a hidden agenda. He's not a fake. He's not a phony. He's going to truly come and be truly concerned about you. Number two, Timothy was about seeking the things of Christ, not his own interests. And then it says that Timothy had proven his worth worth as a son with the father he has served with me in the gospel. Let's go back to Acts. Sorry, should have kept your finger there. Acts chapter 16. What work did Timothy do in the gospel? Um, Wait a minute. That's the wrong passage of scripture. Uh, Forget that. I have no idea why that's in my notes. I really don't. Unless I'm supposed to be looking at 17. Let me look here real quick. I have no idea why I put that passage. That's Paul and Silas in jail. Um, I just forget it. <laughs> I don't know why it's there. I probably had a reason for it, but it doesn't really make sense. Okay, so that's Timothy. So Timothy is a proven servant of Paul. He's like a son to Paul. Paul says, I'm sending him back to you. I can't obviously come because I'm in jail, but I'm going to send my protege, Timothy, to come back and encourage you. And he will do it. I trust the Lord that he'll come shortly. Now, the second person that he mentions here is um, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. We know very little of him. He's only mentioned in this one passage, and he's also mentioned in Philemon 23. But what does Paul describe him? We see three specific things here about Epaphroditus. Number one, Paul's commendation. What does Paul call him there in verse 25? I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger and your minister, to my need. So Paul's like, he's, my, he's a worker, he's a soldier, he's my brother. This guy's a good guy. Number two, Paul tells him the reason that he's sending him 
Verse 26, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. <coughs> Epaphroditus wanted to come to them because he had been ill. He had been, he had been prevented from coming to see them. And so he's probably gotten over his illness, and now he's ready to come back and see this church. And then Paul, number three, says you need to honor him. You need to honor him. Um, honor him in the Lord. Verse 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. He nearly became a martyr. That's why they're to honor him. We don't know what the situation was with Epaphroditus, how he almost died, how he almost got martyred, but evidently this particular individual who's a worker, a soldier, a brother, almost got killed for his faith. And Paul says when he comes back, honor him. So have you ever met somebody that almost died for their faith? Don't, don't meet people like that often, do you? No. No. Anybody ever gone to the Voice of the Martyrs? I get the Voice of the Martyrs magazine every month, and I put it out on the Welcome Center table for whoever wants to take it. Um, but if you go to persecution.com, <clears throat> it's the Voice of the Martyrs website, it will tell you about what's going on in the world as far as missionaries that are being martyred, or people or Christians that are being martyred. Um, and there's a lot going on around the world. Um, even our own pastor, and since it's being recorded in India, Pastor P, um, he's gotten beaten up for just going into a village to show the, the Jesus film. Um, just two weeks ago, they broke into the church. And they bored through a wall to steal some stuff just because they wanted to steal stuff. Um, they've destroyed some of his equipment before. Um, he sent me pictures of pastors up, up in Orissa, which, is a, which is, a, is a state in India, pretty close to where they live where pastors were beaten to death. Um, so it happens all the time. And so while we may not have an Epaphroditus coming to Emmanuel to honor, there is a way we can honor the persecuted church. And one of the ways you can honor people that are being persecuted is to read up about it, to study it, uh, to go to Voice of the Martyrs or um, other, other websites that talk about what's going on and maybe... Um, pray for the persecuted church. Pray for um, Somalia. I, I, off the top of my head, I don't know what the top persecuted countries are, but I do know like Sudan, Somalia, North Korea, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, um, Bhutan, Myanmar. What are some other ones where there's a lot of persecution going on? Um, some parts of India. Libya, yeah, most of your Middle Eastern countries um, where it's illegal. Yeah, Muslim is the official religion. All right, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because there's really not much to tell you except for those are two guys that Paul said, let's <clears throat> send to, to, to encourage you, Timothy and Epaphroditus. So let's shift gears and go into chapter 3. So part 2 for tonight, Paul's opponents to the gospel, verses 1 through 3. And I like the way Paul says, finally, my brothers, and then he's got two more chapters. So he's, that's not really, finally there really means, it's not my final words, it's I'm going on to another subject. Okay, so it follows. Now to another subject. So let's see what Paul has to say. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 
To write the things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What does Paul start out saying there in chapter 3, verse 1? Rejoice in the Lord. So what's the major theme in the book of Philippians? Joy. Joy in the gospel. He repeats it again. So you, you can never get over the fact that we are to rejoice or have joy. What is joy? Sean's definition, not infallible, not inerrant, just a kind of a, my definition. Joy is that deep-seated sense of peace and contentment that rests in Christ's sovereignty and love, regardless of our circumstances where we know that He holds us in His grip and gives us Himself. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. It's not a trouble for him to write these things, but notice what he says there in verse 2. Look out for who? The dogs. Look out for the dogs. Who let the dogs out? Who? Okay. What's he talking about here? Look out for am I so okay, here comes the poodle. I better look out. What's it mean? Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What in the world's going on? Who are these people? Okay, who are these people? Well, I am going to ask you to turn back to Acts again, and this time I, I do know where we're going. So Acts chapter 15. <laughs> Acts chapter 15. This is the, this is the big moment in the book of Acts where... It's called the Jerusalem Council. And what was happening was the Jewish, some of the Jewish people were getting upset that Gentiles were getting saved and not being required to go through circumcision or dietary rules or a lot of the things that were involved in Judaism. And so there's a big brouhaha going on in the church and, the, and a council convenes to discuss this. So let's, let's read Acts chapter 15 verses 1 through 11, to give you a context as far as who these dogs might be and what's going on. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, stop right there. First of all, what's circumcision? Hopefully everybody understands. Okay, circumcision was the outward sign of the Jewish people that they were God's chosen people. What were they teaching? Was it grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? It was salvation by circumcision alone. No, it was, you, what does he say there? Unless you are circumcised according to Moses, you cannot be saved. So they added a requirement onto salvation. It's not simple faith in Christ. It's not repentance of sins and faith in Christ. It's faith plus whatever. So think about this. What is required for salvation? We've got to repent and believe. We've got to have faith in Christ. Okay, is there any other qualifications added onto what salvation is? So it's not plus baptism. It's not plus church attendance. 
not plus um, giving to the poor. In their case, these people would say plus circumcision. Anything, that's not the right way to spell it, anything that you add plus repentance and faith, you're, dist you're distorting the gospel, aren't you? Because what are you saying? There's something else besides repentance and faith in Christ that's required for you to get saved. For these people, they were saying, you've got to require, and I don't know how this would affect the women. Are they just saying, okay, women, you, I mean, what happens if a Gentile woman gets saved? They're saying to, gen to Gentile men, you're not really saved unless you've been outwardly cut in your foreskin. That's, that was the, what they were saying. Well, let's let's see how this unfolds. Let's go back to Acts. Doesn't Jim, that, doesn't that just mean because you're saying what would happen to women? Doesn't that just mean, you know, if you were circumcised, you're basically Jewish. So in order to become saved, you had to become Jewish. First. Pretty much. So Pretty much. A woman would have to become Jewish, and I mean, their household would have to become Jewish, and so in yeah. order to be saved, you have to be Jewish first. Pretty much. In order to be saved, you have to go through all the rites and rituals of becoming Jewish: circumcision, kosher diet, a lot of the Old Testament. So so it wasn't. Christianity, it was Judaism baptized in a little bit of let's add Jesus onto it. Right. That's basically what it was. Yeah, good point. So here's, here's what he says. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. We're back in Acts chapter 15. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. It is necessary. So, some Pharisees who had become believers, but they're still holding on to their Pharisaical traditions, are saying it's necessary for them to be circumcised. Yes, Risa. Now, I know the law came from God to Moses, but they're kind of putting Moses before Jesus. <coughs> yeah, and that was a problem. I mean, they still held to the law of Moses as the standard. Right. And that was the problem, is that Christ came as the greater Moses. Christ came and fulfilled the law. Because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, salvation is not just for the Jew, it's for the Jew first, but then the Gentile. They're still struggling with this whole idea that this is, this is a Jewish thing. If, if they're going to be saved, it's got to be on our terms. And so Moses said to be circ you know, actually the law of circumcision was given to Abraham, but it was part of the whole Mosaic Jewish system. And notice their wording there. It is necessary. It's a requirement for salvation. And so verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after it had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by, the ma by, by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. What's Peter's conclusion? 
you are putting a yoke of legalism on the backs of these Gentiles that's not in line with the gospel. How are, how are we saved? Look at verse 11. We were saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. How are they saved? Through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. God cleansed their hearts by faith. That's important. Look at what it said there in verse 9. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. What were the Pharisees concerned about? Were they concerned about clean hearts or cut foreskin? What was more important to them? The outward ritual or the internal cleansing that comes through the gospel? Okay, so there is this group of, and scholars have called them Judaizers. That's just the word they've used. They're legalistic Jewish people during that time who were trying to put extra requirements upon Gentiles especially to make them Jewish as opposed to salvation by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. So let's go back to Philippians for just a moment. This is still going on during the time Paul is writing to the Philippian church. So there is a group. In verse 2, Paul goes to great... Oh, what's going on there? Uh-oh. Don't tell them my computer's going to die. Oh, PowerPoint just crashed. Oh. Weird. That's bizarre. Okay, here we go. Trey Bazaar. Okay. Let's go back here. Find out where we are. That was really weird. Okay, so in verse 2, let me find out where the slide is here. Paul, what's, you guys tell me as I'm trying to find the slides here. How does verse 2 start? What does he say? Beware the dog. Beware or look beware, look out. It's the same, the same Greek word there. Evildoers, evil dogs. So Paul goes to great lengths in verse 2 and repeats the word, look out. <clears throat> look out, be on guard, beware of these false teachers. Do false teachers normally show up and say with the name tag, I'm a false teacher. How do they come in? Do they come in and announce them? They come as wolves in sheep's clothing. And so that's why Paul said, you've got to look out for these guys. They're slick. They're sly. They may have you over to dinner after the worship service and say, you know what? You know, the pastor was talking about salvation through grace alone, but you know you really ought to be circumcised. If you want to be really spiritual, if you want to be truly accepted by God, if you want to be on that spiritual plane, then you really need to get circumcised. I know your pastor's not going to say that, but we have a little deeper knowledge and we want, to, we, we want what's best for you. That's sly, right? What are they doing? I'm just giving you a scenario here. They're planting seeds of doubt. They're, they're bringing up this whole idea. So Paul says, look out. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul had to deal with the same, not the exact same group, the same type of Judaizers, this, this sect. 
Galatians 2.4, yet, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they may bring us into slavery. They secretly slipped in. They were slippery. They were sneaky. So Paul says, look out for these guys. Now he uses three terms to describe them. Dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. Now dogs. Why does he start with dogs? No, the dogs were mongrel animals that ran around in packs. They, they did not have domesticated dogs. But more importantly, dog was a derogatory word or like a cuss word for a Gentile. It was actually like a derogatory word. What is Paul doing here? Watch out for these Gentiles. Are they Gentiles? No, they're Jewish leaders who are acting like ravenous wolves and dogs that are going to come in and destroy this church. Here's the sharp irony. Who, who did these Judaizers think they were? They thought they were Jewish to the T. And what does Paul call them? You're dogs. You're Gentile dogs. And then, not only does he call them Gentile dogs, he calls them evildoers evildoers. He goes right to their character. These Jews thought that they were blameless and righteous through doing good works. They would have never considered themselves evildoers. And then he calls them mutilators of the flesh. What in the world does that mean? It refers to circumcision. The cutting off of the foreskin was an outward symbol of their Jewish identity. He simply calls it a cutting it really had no value in a personal relationship with Christ. It was only an outward formality. So what happens if you... What, happen, what does Paul say happens to you? If you want to be Jewish, according to the law, and according to circumcision, if you want to do that, if that's your decision, what is that going to bring in your life? Let's look at some scriptures that talk about the burden that comes if you want to be Jewish and follow the Jewish law and circumcision and all these things. Galatians 3.10 All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You want to be a good Jew? You've got to obey all the law. 100% of the time, all the time. If you don't, you're under a curse. Anybody want to bear that burden? Okay. Galatians 5.3 I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You want to undergo circumcision? You've got to keep the whole law. Galatians 6.13 Even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that you that they may boast in your flesh. Paul's saying, listen, even, the, even these guys that are, like, think they're all Jewish, they don't even keep the law. They can't even do it. So Paul says, be on the lookout for any false teacher that's going to add some requirement onto repentance and faith, grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. 
Whether it be circumcision, whether it be baptism, whether it be church attendance, whether it be any other work that's added onto repentance and faith, Paul says that is false teaching. Be on the lookout. But then he's going to make a distinction. These people thought they were the true Jews. They thought they were the true Israelites. They took pride in their circumcision. And Paul says they've got it all wrong. If we want to talk about who the true Israelites are, if we want to talk about who the true circumcision are, that's us as Christian believers. Let's see what Paul says. Let's look now at three marks of genuine believers in Jesus. We are now the true Jews. We're the authentic Israel, not these false teachers. What does Paul say in verse 3? For we, who's we? Us, believers, Christians. We are the, we are the circumcision. What? We are the circumcision. When's the last time somebody came up to you and said, are you a Christian? You said, no, I'm the circumcision. <laughs> Run away. What are you talking about? What does it mean that we are the circumcision? Now, before I explain this, because it's a really weird concept, let's go back into the Old Testament and look at how God's prophecy about a future day God prophesied in the Old Testament that something would happen in the coming of Christ, in the coming of the New Covenant. Okay, So let's look at a few passages here in the Old Testament. Okay? Jeremiah 31, 33-34. This is the, the, the promise of the New Covenant in Jeremiah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one each his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more so God promises in the new covenant in a day in the future this is Old Testament Jeremiah God's going to do something God's going to do something with their heart I'm going to put the law within their heart. I'm going to change the heart. And I'm going to forgive all their sins. I'm going to do an internal work of cleansing. That's what I'm promising to do in Jeremiah. I'm going to give them a new heart. I'm going to forgive all their sins. Okay. What does Ezekiel say God's going to do at a future day? In the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 26-27. I, this is God speaking, I will give you a, what? New heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I'll say the imagery here is you've got a heart of stone and God's going to cut out that heart of stone. And what's he going to put in its place? A new heart. 
He's going to put the Holy Spirit in you. He's going to do an internal cleansing. This almost sounds like not an internal cleansing, but an internal what? Cutting. Think about that for a moment. He's going to cut something away and replace it with something. What is circumcision? The cutting away. Now, outward circumcision is what? Cutting away a foreskin. God says, I'm going to do something greater and deeper than just outwardly cutting away foreskin to show that you're my people. I'm actually going to go into your heart. Your sinful, dead, stony heart. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to cut that heart out that's dead, that's lifeless. I'm going to put a new heart in you. I'm going to bring internal cleansing. I'm going to actually put my Holy Spirit in you. Okay. Do you see how that's a whole lot better than circumcision, right? Who cares if your foreskin's cut off if you don't have a new heart? If you don't have the Holy Spirit in you? And Paul says this in Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, from God. So what's a true Jew, according to Paul? Is it outward circumcision? Or, what does he say? A circumcision of the heart. Okay? Colossians 2.11 in Him, speaking of Jesus, in Him, Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, wait a minute. A circumcision made without hands. Who has to do that? God, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay? So, what really counts in salvation. The outward cutting away of the foreskin in physical circumcision or the supernatural work where God gets to your heart and takes out or cuts out that old dead heart, puts a new heart in, gives you complete forgiveness of sins, puts His Holy Spirit in you and cleanses you from the inside out. What is more important? Which one would you rather have? The second, what are these Judaizers trying to do? Go back to the outward. And what does Paul say? Look at it. Verse 3, we are the circumcision. What does it mean, we are the circumcision? We are those who have new hearts that God has given us when He caused us to be born again. And thus, if we were going to talk about who a true Jew is, what did Paul just say a true Jew was? Someone who's been changed in the heart. That's why Paul in Galatians can call Gentiles in Galatians 6.16, As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. He can call us the Israel of God because we are now the true circumcision. The spiritual circumcision. 
So not only, that's the first definition he gives us, us as believers. He's like, you are the circumcision. So how would you say it? If somebody says, are you a Christian? No, I'm the circumcision. What would be a better way of saying it? <laughs> are you a Christian? Absolutely. But you know what happened to me? I was dead in my sins and I was enslaved to sin and God gave me a new heart. God cleansed me from the inside out. God completely forgave me and he gave me the Holy Spirit. That's the same thing as saying as I'm the circumcision. Does that make sense? <laughs> but you would never use the term because most people on the street would be like, what are you talking about? I'm the circumcision. Especially if you're a girl. Yeah, especially if you're a girl. What? <laughs> so. All right, the second thing that Paul says about us as believers in contrast to these Judaizers, we are the circumcisers, so circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. We are true worshipers. We aren't bound by outward religious ceremony. Since we have had our heart cut out, since we have been given a new heart, we worship God and glory in Christ Jesus by the Spirit. Notice the Trinitarian language there. We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. We are true worshipers in spirit and in truth. What did Jesus say to the woman at the well in John 4, 23-24? The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. We are those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 8-9. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's talking about lost people. Lost people can't please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. We now have the Holy Spirit living in us. And so by the Spirit in us, we can worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. That's why Paul says in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So verse 3, number 1, we are the circumcision, who number 2, worship by the Spirit of God, and then number 3, we put no confidence in the flesh. Now, in the immediate context, he's been talking about circumcision. So what he's saying is, is, is in the context, is, as Christians, we don't worry about, or those original Philippians, we don't worry about physical circumcision. We experience a spiritual circumcision of been giving a new heart. We're not really dealing with the circumcision issue today, but what's the principle? The principle is... We do not put any trust in the flesh or in what we can accomplish. What's the flesh? We, where's our confidence? Is your confidence in what you can do or in what God can do? Okay, let me give you some quotes by some old dead people. Here's A.C. Dixon. When we depend upon organizations, we get what organizations can do. When we depend upon education, we get what education can do. When we depend upon man, we get what man can do. But when we depend upon prayer, we get what God can do. Where's our trust? 
Ian Bounds wrote a lot about prayer. He said this, We're constantly on the stretch, if not on a strain, to devise new methods, new plans, new organizations to advance the church and secure enlargement and efficiency of the gospel. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but men, and I would say women, whom the Holy Spirit can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. So Paul makes this distinction. He says, look out. This group of Judaizers are going to sneak into the church. They're dogs. They're evildoers. They're trying to get you to go back to to become Jewish, outward circumcision. But you're not that. Talking about circumcision, you're the true circumcision. You've been saved by grace. You have a new heart. You're the true worshipers of God. You're not putting confidence in any outward religious um, type of, uh, of work to, to get accepted by God. You, you have a new heart. Okay. Now Paul is going to give his resume. So part three tonight, Paul's former, quote, religious life. What did you say? We put no confidence in the flesh. Okay, look at verse 4. Philippians 3, verse 4. Though I myself, this is Paul, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Okay, what's Paul saying there? If you want to stack resumes up and see who's the better Jew, if we're just talking about who's the Jewish of the Jews, I'll, I'll give you my resume, and it will beat you all any day. And he's going to go on and say this. Verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul divides this list into two categories. Privileges of heredity and personal achievements. What does he list about his privileges of heredity? Hey, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That was required by law to be circumcised on the eighth day. My parents did it right. I was a good, my parents were good Jewish parents. I got circumcised on the eighth day the way I was supposed to. As a matter of fact, I'm a true Israelite. And not just a true Israelite, I can trace my lineage back to the tribe of Benjamin. I know my roots. I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a Samaritan. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, if there ever was one. So, I've got heredity on my side. I can trace my lineage back. I am a Jew of Jew. You can trace it back to the tribes. But not only that, the second category he says is, you know, if, if you don't, if you don't think that my resume works with my heredity, let me tell you some of my personal achievements. And as to a Pharisee, to the letter of the law. I mean, I, I, was, a, I was one of the top Pharisees in all the land. I knew the, the law backwards and forwards. Um, Paul says in Galatians 1, 13 and 14, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. Former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. What's Paul saying? I was at the top of the class. The guys that were in my same class, I was passing them up. 
I was excelling. I was becoming a Pharisee of Pharisees. I, was, I ate, slept, and drank being a Pharisee. That was my life. And not only that, not only was I a Pharisee of Pharisees, but I was a violent persecutor of the church. Go back to Acts chapter 8 for a minute. Because you can get a little bit of Paul's biography in the, in the book of Acts. I know we keep jumping back there, but it all ties together. <coughs> Remember Paul's name before he was Paul? His name was Saul. Saul of Tarsus. What does Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3 tell us? This is Paul. Saul approved of his execution. That's Stephen. This is right after Stephen gets stoned to death. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Was Paul just kind of a, hey, easy go, easy going Pharisee? What does it say there? He ravaged the church. He was knocking on people's doors and dragging them out and taking them to prison. And he thought he was doing it all in the name of God. I'm, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I've got the heredity. I've got the, the academic credentials of being a Pharisee. And I was ex- exceeding all of my peers. And I was so zealous to promote this, this Judaism that I was actually going out and killing Christians. Having them persecuted. 1 Timothy 1, 12-14 I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What was His former life? A blasphemer, a persecutor, an opponent, He acted ignorantly. And then what's the last thing Paul says as his resume? Man, I was blameless under the law. Now, I don't think that meant Paul never sinned because he was human. But I think Paul could say that according to outward religious duties, according to the law of Moses, he probably faithfully did these and was recognized as his peers as one without fault. So what's Paul saying here? I've got my heredity, and I've got my personal achievements. And that was what my former life was, and I was putting all my stock in that, to be accepted by God. Now, you may not have the same resume as Paul, but do you know some people that are trusting in their achievements, or trusting in their heredity, to be accepted by God? Well, God must love me because I was born in America. Or I must be accepted by God because I was born in a Christian family. Or I must be accepted by God because I try really hard to do all these things. I was, I was baptized as a baby. I was confirmed. I've done all these things. God must owe me salvation because, look, God, here's my resume. Have you ever given God your resume? You, you'd probably never admit that out loud. Look, God, here's all the things I've done for you. Now, get to work. Paul says, listen, if there's anybody that had a resume, if there's anybody that could, that could hold up, if there was anybody who was the poster child of Judaism, it was me. By heredity and by my personal achievements. 
But that was my former life. Let's now move on to what we're going to do the last part of tonight. Paul's new passionate pursuit. Look at how verse 7 starts. But. When a sentence starts with but. Does all your sentences start with but? When a sentence starts with but, what does that mean? What's he saying? Why do you use but? However, this may have been how it was, but this is how it is now. Listen to what Paul What? Have yet. Have yet. Yeah. So let's look at verses 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, and he just listed them all, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is going to make a stark contrast between his former life in his life now. But before we look at this, let me just ask you a question. How do you renew a passion for Jesus? Sometimes we go through the motions of the Christian life, and sometimes we're just kind of content to go to church on Sunday, hang out with a few Christian friends, Maybe you read our Bible every now and then, but the question is, do you see an intensity and a passion here in Paul's language? Paul was not a passive man, okay? There is a passion here for Christ. So how do we know that Paul experienced the genuine transformation of being saved by grace? Well, he has a new passion. Paul has a new passion. What? Does he say in verse 7? Whatever gains, and literally it's in the plural, whatever gains I had. And he just listed them, right? All those accolades, all those accomplishments, all those achievements, all those things that he was awarded through his legalistic zealousness and his misdirected enthusiasm, he says, I counted a loss. I didn't care about any of that. Tribe of Benjamin, my resume, all those things that made me who I was, that all my accomplishments, I burned them down. I counted them all loss. And when Paul says, I counted them, I counted them as loss, in the original language, it really means Paul is fully convinced and he is persuaded that his past gains were actually losses. This is a solid consideration that everything about his past amounted to nothing. Now that's genuine conversion. Evidence of genuine conversion. When Christ calls you to salvation, 
there is a definite break with your past life where you are dead to sin and alive to Christ and God has given you new desires and new affections that weren't there before. You've been born again. You have new life. Okay? Everything that I was stacking up on my resume to, 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 to earn favor with God, out the window. I don't care about it at all. Then in verse 8, he says, I count everything a loss. Everything that in my past was a loss. Because of the what? Surpassing worth. Does anybody have a different terminology besides surpassing worth in verse 8? I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth. Does anybody have anything different? Surpassing greatness. Greatness, okay. The excellence of the knowledge of Christ. The excellence, okay. So, for his sake, I suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Well, right. So, how does verse this verse? How does verse does verse eight? I consider everything a loss compared to the. Does it have anything like excellencies or surpassing worth or? No. So for. What's Paul saying? I want to know Christ, knowing Christ. And the word knowledge here in the original language does not just mean a head knowledge or knowing certain facts. It actually means an experiential, intimate knowledge of Christ. And it's so surpassing worth. Basically, Paul's saying, there's no greater treasure, there's no greater thing I want to do on this earth than to know Jesus. That's a passionate pursuit. Do you want to know Jesus more deeply? Or are you just content to kind of hang out and go through the motions? Paul says, knowing Jesus is of surpassing value. It's of, of an excellent worth. And he makes an actually a very crude statement. <laughs> it's kind of a PG-13 word there. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The, the word scubalon. Let me just say it this way. It, 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 it was a, a lump of manure, dung, rotten food, a rotting corpse, trash, or what's thrown to dogs. Okay, here's, here's where most scholars believe. There's three words in our English language for that, right? There's poop, which is kind of a nice word. There's the S word, which is really kind of a more of a PG-13 rated R word. And there's the middle one, crap, okay? Most scholars believe Paul, like he didn't use the all the way, the S word is not what he would use in the Bible, but he used the word like, it's stronger than just poop, it's crap. Basically, Paul is using a coarse word to say everything else, all that resume that I'm stacking up, everything about my former life, everything that I was putting hope in, all the stuff I was putting confidence in, everything that I was trying to earn to get into God's favor, being a Pharisee of Pharisees, I consider all that a pile of manure. Dumb what's thrown out to dogs. 
That's a strong statement. Can we truly say that we consider our old life and the things we so dearly hold on to as sins as piles of manure? Paul said, everything else took a pile of manure. So that's Paul's passion. My passion, Paul says, is to know Jesus. That's my passion. But Paul also has a new priority. His priority is to gain Christ. So look at verse 8 again. I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Okay, so I want to know Christ. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I want to know Christ and I want to gain Christ. Now, is Paul talking about somehow gaining his salvation by hoping that he gets saved? Is that what he's talking about there? No, he's already saved. Paul's not hoping that he's saved. When he says, I want to gain Christ, he's hoping and eagerly desiring for himself that someday he will ultimately see Christ face to face in heaven and he wants to know him more and more until he gets there. So Paul, so two things here. I want to know Christ and I want to gain Christ. <coughs> So you can think about it this way. Know is more in the present. Gain is more in the future. I want to know Christ as much as I can right now. And one day when I get to heaven in the future, I'm going to gain Christ in the sense that I'm going to be with Him face to face. And the old Puritan John Owen in one of his books said, he wants to know Jesus so much on earth that when he does get to heaven, he, Jesus isn't a stranger. Now, it's an interesting way of looking at it. So Paul says, this is my passion to know Christ. This is my priority to gain Christ. But then Paul throws in a really crucial teaching about salvation Paul's new position in Christ. What's been, the, what's been the false teaching going on that Paul's been addressing in this passage of Scripture with these Judaizers? What's Paul been saying? They want you to be circumcised. They want you to do some type of outward ritual. They want you to do some type of work to add on to your salvation so that you can be accepted by God. And Paul blows that out of the water in verse 9. What does Paul say in verse 9? And to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He's going to give us some great theological truths about our new position in Christ as a result of our, our salvation. Notice what he says there, to be found in Christ. Does anybody have a different translation in verse 9 besides to be found in Christ? That's an interesting word, to be found in Christ. What does it assume? If you're not found, what are you? You're lost. What's our relationship before we're found? We're lost before our salvation. We're without hope. We're dead in our sins. We're dead in our trespasses. And so Christ came to seek and save that which was lost. And so when Paul says to be found in Christ, 
It's this whole idea of being saved, but to be found in Christ. We talked about this a few weeks ago. This is one of the greatest truths in the entire Bible, to be in Christ. Again, that we have that intimate, dynamic, spiritual union with Christ. That I am in Christ. But it has a lot to do with what we call imputed righteousness or justification by faith alone. What does Paul say in verse 9? Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Are you saved by any righteousness you produce out of your own will? Or by obeying the law? That's not how you're found in Christ. That's not how you're saved. Paul says, that's not the righteousness that I need. But, that which comes through what? Faith in Christ. A righteousness from whom? From God. Now, why can't we produce a righteousness of our own? Because Paul says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, it's talking about Adam in the garden, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Every single person born into this world is born in what we call in Adam. Because Adam sinned, he brought sin to all of us, and we are born sinners. So is there any way possible that we can produce a righteousness that comes from our own selves? Even on your best day, if you kept... Right, let's just talk about the Ten Commandments. So there's a righteousness that's required. Is God a righteous God? Has God given us His law? Let's just sum up the law and the Ten Commandments. Are these commandments of God? Yes, they are, because they're called the Ten Commandments. Okay. Can you, in and of yourself, keep all Ten Commandments 100% of the time, all the time? No. Why? We're human. We're sinners. We lack the ability to keep the law. <clears throat> we cannot produce a righteousness of our own because we're sinners. But does God require righteousness? Yes. What God requires, He provides. Can you produce the righteousness in order to be saved? Notice the careful wording that Paul says. Where does this righteousness come from? Notice this exact wording. It's there at the end of verse 9. That which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from where? From God. God gives us this righteousness. Let me draw a drawing here. I've gone this many times. For those of you listening on the podcast, you're just going to have to visualize it. So, God the Father is a judge. And when God the Father looks down upon your life as the judge, what does he see without Christ? You are guilty. And pretend like your life is a bank account. So in your life, when God the Father looks down as a judge upon your life, what does he see in your bank account? 
he sees a negative balance, right? Let's just say a negative gazillion dollar balance. We'll make up a word. You have a major sin debt. Because think about all the sins you commit in a day. Even just in your thoughts. And they pile up. Let's say you live to be 100. How many sins would you commit in a, year, in a lifetime? A lot, okay? So, based upon what God sees, all he can do is declare you guilty because you have a sin debt that you can never get rid of. Okay. This is Jesus, his life and death on the cross over here. When you, by faith, where does this righteousness come? What does it say? It's a righteousness through... Yeah, faith. So when you believe or when you have faith in Jesus, something happens. Out of your account, all of that sin, all of that guilt goes out of your account and it's credited or it's imputed or it's reckoned or it's accounted or it's debited, whatever, whatever accounting term you want to use. All of that sin is taken out of your account and it's placed upon Jesus when he died on the cross. So Jesus takes all of your debt upon himself. Now at this point, what's your balance? Zero. Is that good enough? Now you don't want to have debt, right? But do you want to have zero? You want to have a positive balance. Can you produce a positive balance? What did Paul just say right there? Read it again. Verse 9. Being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. Can you in yourself produce a positive righteousness in order to be accepted before God? No, you can't. So something happens back the other way. When you believe and have faith in Jesus, not only is your sin debt taken out of your account, but the perfect record, the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited or is imputed or is reckoned to your life. So now, because your sin's been taken out of your account and Christ's perfect record's put into your account, when God the Father, as the judge, looks down upon your life, what does He now see? He sees a positive balance, and it's not yours, it's Christ that He's given to you as a gift. And based upon what God the Father sees, what pronouncement does He make now? Does He call you guilty, or does He call you not guilty? You are now not guilty. Now, what was the only thing you did in that entire transaction? You believed. You had faith in Christ. There was no circumcision. There was no baptism. There was no church attendance. It's not a righteousness you can produce on your own. It comes through faith. When you believe in Jesus, all your sins are taken out of your account, placed upon Him. All of His perfect record of righteousness is credited to you so that now you have the righteousness of Christ. You are found in Christ and God then can pronounce you not guilty. This is called justification by faith alone. Paul is teaching this key doctrine right here in this passage of Scripture. You are justified only when God the Father, based solely upon the work of Christ in your place on the cross, declares you to be not guilty upon the exercise of the gift of faith. To be justified means to be declared right with God 
by virtue of the forgiveness of sins accomplished by Jesus. Furthermore, Christ's righteousness is credited to us. That was the drawing there. And our sins are credited to Christ. This is a one-time, non-repeatable act whereby God shows us sovereign mercy and seeing us as not guilty on the basis of Christ. It can never be repeated. Once, once you have faith in Christ, you are forever in a new position of being justified because the righteousness of Christ is now yours. That's what Paul says to be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of his own. So that's why in Romans, in Romans 5, 1-2, Paul can say, Therefore, since we have been justified, that whole process there, by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through Him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is condemnation? Guilt. If you are found in Christ, if you are a Christian, are you, any, are you guilty? Now, so what is Paul saying here? To be found in Christ... To be in Christ means that we are united to Him in personal relationship through His righteousness and not our own. We are found in Him. We're no longer lost or in Adam. We're now saved, found, declared righteous in Christ. That's the heart of the gospel. You can't produce this righteousness on your own. It has to be a gift that God gives you. When you believe in Jesus, this beautiful transaction takes place and you're forever in a new position of being accepted by God. So here's the question. How should, quote, being in Christ as a justified sinner motivate us to live a life pleasing to Him? This is what separates the terms justification from sanctification. Justification is the one-time legal declaration that we're righteous before God on account of Christ, what we just looked at. Sanctification, on the other hand, is the process a believer undergoes as the Spirit of God works in him or her to make the person more like Christ and it continues our entire lifetime. So, this deals with position. Okay, so justification deals with position. Sanctification deals with progress. And Paul's going to shift from our position to our progress. Okay? Verse 10. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. In verse 10, what's Paul's desire now that he's been found in Christ? He's saved. He's got that position... What does he want to do again? He's repeated it twice. I want to know him. I want to know Jesus. Personally. Intimately. He's already said that, right? Didn't he say it back in verse 8? I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Verse 10, I want to know him. I don't want to just know about Jesus. What's the difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus? Is there a huge difference? It's about 18 inches. Between your head and your heart. Okay, some people say that. 
A lot of people have knowledge of who Christ is. If I were to go out in the street today and say, hey, tell me a little bit about Jesus. Uh, he was a good teacher. He died on the cross. He rose again. Um, he's in the Bible. You know, a lot of people worship him on Easter. He's a cool dude. You know Jesus. You know about Jesus. Does that person know Jesus? There's a huge difference. Look at Paul's prayer. Turn over just to Ephesians. Turn, turn one book over to your left. Ephesians chapter 3. Listen to Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 because he, Paul had this desire to know Christ. You can never get over knowing Jesus more deeply. It's not like you're saved. Okay, I'm saved. I know about Jesus. Now I can go on my merry way. That wasn't Paul's attitude. That's not the biblical attitude. Look at the prayer that Paul prays in Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. Let's start back in verse verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. I want to know everything there is to know about Jesus. The height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of His love. That I may be filled with the fullness of Christ. So Paul, back in Philippians, says, I want to know Jesus more deeply. How do you do that? We talked about it a few weeks ago. It's, it's, it's easier than it. I mean, it's nothing radical. It's reading your Bible and praying. You're not going to know somebody unless you spend time with them. How do you spend time with them? You read your Bible and you you pray. But notice what else Paul says. I want to know Christ, but I also want to know the power. Power of His resurrection. We like that, don't we? I want power. I want to experience the power of Christ. I want to experience the power of resurrection. There's nothing wrong with that. Paul prays for it over in Ephesians. Lord, give me power. Strengthen me in my inner being. I want to know this power. I want to know Christ. I want to know His power. I want to to experience the strength. Then Paul drops the bomb. What's he say next? I want to know Him. That sounds cool. I want to have His power. That sounds great. Oh, and I want to share in His sufferings. Wait a minute, Paul. I don't like that. I like the power. I like the knowledge. I don't like the suffering. Paul says, I want to share in suffering. I want a koinonia. I want to share. I'm going to have a joint partnership in the suffering with Christ. Most of us like the power, right? Most of us like the knowledge. Most of us don't want to suffer. Suffering is one of those hard things that comes upon us as believers that sometimes doesn't make sense. Here's a question. What if I were to tell you that for God to bring true revival to your life and your family, it would involve a major interruption that might bring suffering? Would you welcome it with joy or run as far as you could from it? If God's plan for you was to bring true spiritual revival, and it was for you to share in the sufferings with Christ, would you welcome it or would you run from it? What was Paul's attitude? I'm going to welcome it. Well, he's already in prison too. I think as American Christians, we like, I want the power. 
And I want the success, but I sure don't want the suffering that comes along with it. And Paul says, if I'm going to truly know Jesus and, 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 and know everything about him and, and be intimately connected with him, if Christ suffered, I'm going to suffer. And I need to welcome that. Now, what's Paul's ultimate hope? Verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul's ultimate hope here was complete salvation. A resurrected body in the very presence of Christ in heaven. This is what theologians call glorification. That final experience of salvation when we have a new body. And when, in verse 11 when he says, by any means possible, this is not like a doubt on Paul's part. Somehow he's going to miss it. By any means possible, I may miss it. It's really words of humility from the chiefest of sinners. He's in awe that God would actually save him. And what does he want to attain? What does he want to arrive at? What's his, what's his hope? The resurrection from the dead. My ultimate goal is one day I will receive my new body. And it's, it's interesting, that word resurrection, it's used nowhere else in Scripture. It's a unique word for Paul. It literally means out-resurrection, the new body, the glorified state, which happens at the second coming of Christ when we're changed in a twinkling of an eye and receive our new glorified body. So, so let's, tra- let's, let's just, let's just um, go back and, and follow Paul's train of thought here. Let's, let's go back bird's eye. Paul says, listen, there's going to be some false teachers coming in that are going to want to add requirements on the gospel for you to believe. Watch out for them. Don't put confidence in anything you can produce. As a matter of fact, if there's anybody that can put confidence in what they can produce, it was me. I had the resume. I had the heredity. I had the lineage. I had it stacked up. I could prove to God my worth by all these things that I did. But I count all that a loss. I want to know Jesus. I want to pursue Jesus. I want to be found in Jesus. I want to suffer with Jesus. I want the power with Jesus. Everything there is to know and experience with Jesus, that's what I want. I don't care about that other stuff. It's a pile of manure. I want Jesus. And ultimately, I will see him face to face, and I know one day I'll be raised from the dead, and I'll get to see Jesus once and for all. Until that day, I want to spend as much time on earth getting to know him and know him more deeply. So the final question for tonight is this. Do you have a holy dissatisfaction and desire more of Jesus? A holy dissatisfaction. Are you satisfied with where you are in your pursuit of Jesus? Or do you desire more of Him? So that's the end. Unless there's questions or comments on the few minutes we have left. Yes, Bob. I've got some comments. Uh, uh, <coughs> talked about uh, the breadth, length, and height, and depth. Ephesians. You know the love of Christ and surpass knowledge. Uh, also, I remember the scripture, it's steadfast love endures forever. Mm-hmm. To me, that's forever and ever and ever. We can't comprehend that. And so we really, I mean, we could try to know God more and better and, and do so, but we could never. Right. Holy. Yeah, you cannot fully, exhaustively know God because He's God. But we can know Him to the limits He allows us to know Him through what He's given us to know Him. Well, yeah, it just shows how great He is and yeah. how loving He is and that He's always got something for us to yeah. Yeah. 
yeah. and his love is just surprising. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 an, it's an infinite love and an infinite God. We can't know everything there is to know about God, but we can desire to know Christ more. What would you say about um, Matthew five twenty, where Jesus is actually speaking, and he says, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but and so if you look at righteousness, yeah, your husband answered the question for you. Do you want to answer it? Or you already did? So God does not ever lower his standards of righteousness in order to get into heaven. So let me ask, I'm, I'm going I'm to play a little game with you. Are you saved by works? Yes. Not yours, but Jesus's. Okay? I'm playing a game with you. Okay. You are not saved by your own works of righteousness, but is there righteousness required to be in a right standing with God? Yes. Can you produce that? No. Does Jesus do that? Yes. Does he give it to you as a gift? Yes. So, yes, your righteousness must surpass. The Pharisees were like the human standard, but they couldn't even attain the perfect righteousness. It needed to exceed even that to be the righteousness of Christ given to you as a gift, imputed to you, so that you could be accepted by God. Does, does that answer that question, sort of? Oh, yeah. Okay. You're trying to... You're, yeah, you're being honored. <laughs> That's a good question. But it does go to that. There's that kind of constant struggle about... You know, showing our faith by our works, mm-hmm. and yet, you know, you can't have one without the other. Yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Them. You. You are justified by faith alone, but a faith that's not alone. There's got to be works that follow to prove that you truly were saved in the first place. Is that kind of what you're saying, mm-hmm. Dale? Let me well, come I'm back. Going to say that those works are not works; they're the fruit of that. Yeah. Of the righteousness that is given to you through Christ yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Ephesians 2.10. What, what does Ephesians 2.8 and 9 say? For it is by grace. Let's turn there real quick so I make sure we're quoting it correct. Everybody turn to Ephesians 2.8 and 9. <clears throat> For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. Sounds real familiar, right? Not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Okay, it's a gift. Not a result of works. Not your works so that no man may boast. But look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And yet God has created us to walk in the fruit of that by performing works of righteousness that are the overflow of that grace that He's shown us. We aren't saved by works. We're saved by grace for works that prove that we were saved by grace. Does that make sense? And in a sense, they're, 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 they're works, but they're the fruit of God working in us. Like we saw last week. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who wills and works in you for his good pleasure. You still have got to produce fruit, but God gives you the power and the desire and the ability to produce that fruit. Any other questions? Wow. Go ahead, Bob. I've got a little bit of concern, uh, not a lot. I know what, what you preached here tonight about suffering. 
but Jesus suffered for our sins. Mm-hmm. But so some people, I mean, uh, Paul's thinking that he's got to suffer with Christ. I mean, he can't die as right. So what's where's the boundary? Yeah, that could be taken. If you took that to a literal extreme, it would be like I got to go die on the cross and suffer to the extent yeah. of Christ. I don't think that what Paul's saying. I got to go be martyred. Right. I think what he's saying is. I need to at least be willing to experience whatever suffering God ordains for me because Christ suffered and being in union with him means that living in a fallen world, I'm going to suffer. I don't want to run away from it. Maybe like a discipline, like a loving father to make us Yeah, it could be, yeah. Sometimes it could be discipline. Sometimes it could just be the results of living in a fallen world. And sometimes it could be consequences for your own sin. But I don't think it means that Paul's called to suffer in the same way but that he needs to be willing to at least suffer in his relationship. Yeah. Does, that, does that make sense? Cause, yeah. Because yeah. Yeah, I think you could take it to the extreme yeah, and yeah, say, and yeah, God to. calls everybody to go you know, <laughs> to the extreme of suffering. Right. Um, different people have different degrees of suffering. Yes. Um, God is sovereign over that. Um, some you bring them on yourself. Some of it's yeah. fallen world. Some of it's discipline. It's different degrees, different times. I mean, God's providential working. He, he, he kind of orchestrates the suffering based upon... His his will, yes, Dale. But there again, the suffering. <coughs> we, you know, he just said himself, if they persecute me, will they mm-hmm. not persecute you? And just like the missionaries that you talked about at the beginning, voice and martyr. I mean, the pastors in India who were beat up on a regular basis and thrown into prison or you know mm-hmm. wherever around the world. We are called to suffer, and that's that's part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Here's what I would say. We must be prepared to suffer and receive it with joy. How it comes, how long it is, and to what extent it is, that's God's business. Because it's going to be different for every person. The point is, are we willing to undergo it with joy? Does that make sense? All right, let's go. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, thank you for this time together. Um, Lord, we do pray that we would want to know you more deeply, that we would have this passion that Paul has, that we would consider everything else a loss compared to knowing you, that we want to gain you, to be found in you, to, to prize you, to, to love you, to worship you, and that, Lord, we would have a holy dissatisfaction with the status quo, that we would want to seek you more, more fully, grow to love you more deeply, and experience the love, the height, the depth, the breadth, the width of your love for us. So, Lord... Help us to do that. Um, Lord, thank you for the power that you do give us on a daily basis. And Lord, if we do have to suffer, help us to receive it with joy. We praise this. We, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right.